1: Welcome to Real Vision, Jim. Thanks so much for being here. It's such an honor to have this opportunity. I've been looking forward to to this conversation for a while now. It's it's not too often that you get a chance like this to talk to someone with your level of experience, your track record, um, and also your approach. You know, in our industry, investors tend to be really focused on a specific strategy or a specific locality. But you've developed a strategy that is. Sort of go anywhere. So you'll invest across the globe and across all different
0: property types. So I think we're going to learn a lot today from you and, and thank
1: you for being here.
0: Well, Nick, it's my pleasure as well. And I'm um, delighted to also talk about my favorite subject, which is real estate markets uh, globally. So I uh, look forward to the conversation. Great. I thought maybe we could start by, you know, before
1: we get into the, the state of affairs in this, this crazy emerging post COVID world. Uh, I'd love to learn a little bit more about about you and your story. You know, where did you
0: come from? Where did you grow up, and how did you get into this business? <laughs> well, actually, uh, grew up in uh, partly in the U.S. but also in Europe, and it, um, I, I, I guess that sort of planted the seed for my interest in uh, foreign languages and foreign markets, um, which I then uh, pursued when I joined a uh, real estate. Company I had been in banking, then joined a real estate company called LaSalle Partners, which was just sort of getting started, and um, pushed them in the direction of two markets, two areas that I thought were very price inefficient, and that was real estate securities and also global real estate securities. Um, And this is back in the early 90s. And remember, we had the RTC and the U.S. real estate markets were blowing up. And what I noticed is when you buy the stock you can buy the stock immediately whereas to buy a good piece of real estate in a down market is not so easy it can take some time whereas the public markets are forced sales all the time and then what i also noticed is pricing in markets outside the us were far less efficient far less information efficient and, uh, and there's a much bigger gap so you know i like uh, easy fat pitches down the middle and um, this this for me was very obvious so i Built that business out over the years, so this is the mid '90s uh, to today, and so I've been investing in global markets um, uh, throughout that whole whole time. And we'll we'll invest in any market uh, anywhere in the world where there's a uh, listed real estate company. But what it does is it gets you into all the real estate markets, frankly, um, because of public companies uh, pretty much everywhere. That's that's interesting. And when
1: you were younger. Did you know you were going to be an investor? Like, when did when did you first kind of have that realization?
0: You know, I I never. I'll tell you, a friend of mine got me excited about the real estate business. I've been doing um, uh, corporate finance, and uh, you know, it was kind of boring. And the real estate guys were having a lot more fun and very different business. Uh, as you know, as a real estate investor, uh, your learning curve is always going up. You're always presented with different market opportunities. And different challenges, um, and boy, we've seen them a lot uh, since this COVID um, situation. But but that's happened uh, throughout time. And what is also interesting is you find that real estate is something that, well, it, you you might look at it as fungible, meaning it's got a similar value everywhere. It's really not. I mean, what you like in an office in LA is not what works in Hong Kong. Um, same thing with an apartment, and so or a house. Uh, so there's a lot of uniqueness to the business. And that's what creates this price inefficiency. And I guess I, you know, I, I went to B school in Chicago, so we were born and bred on the uh, efficient market hypothesis. And I was always trying to figure out how that was wrong. So um, and real estate kind of proves it daily. Um, so I was really, you know, never really thought about it, um, but just really got intrigued by the challenges of the real estate industry that were different from what I was seeing from other businesses. Okay. And in those
1: in those early days at LaSalle, is there like a first deal that stands out where you had like, you know, an epiphany about this this realization that you've come to that seems to have guided your strategy over the years?
0: Well, you know, there were there were a couple of deals. Uh, one was a venture I put together with um, the Pritzker family, Hyatt Regency, and combined with, uh, believe it or not, UPS to create a new brand. Um, and it was, it was a lot of fun working with the Pritzker family, uh, who's obviously steeped in real estate. Um, and then UPS, who wasn't, it's a delivery company back then, um, only known for the brown suits and not nearly the kind of company it is today. But it was a really complicated deal. Uh, and the hotel business is even more complicated. So frankly, what I, I did, uh, I did quite a bit of um, hotel type deals. Uh, one was the Probably the most challenging was the Beaver Creek uh, workout of that resort where it, it kind of went bust and we had to restructure it. And then the other big deal that I did was um, the hotel, um, the Four Seasons Hotel in New York, which was uh, a restructuring again. You know, when we were in the 90s, everything you did early 90s was, uh, you know, blow ups. Um, and so you learn from fixing problems, I think, better. Uh, how to do investing going forward, and you 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 really get a lot out of that.
1: Yeah, you can see sort of the mistakes that were made in the inception phase as you're as you're cleaning it up.
0: <laughs> yeah, if you get everything right, I don't think you learn as much. Um, but I I haven't, <laughs> and I've uh, had to learn a lot. Um, and, and boy, the problems when they're big, in real estate when they're big, they're really big. Um, you know, the four seasons hotel was budgeted to be five or six hundred thousand a room. It ended up costing probably close to a million uh, five per room. Uh and and you know, then ended up selling to the guy who set up the beanie babies uh uh for like five or six hundred thousand a room. So it went all the way back down. And you know, people talk about real estate going only up, but boy, well, I can show you a, a million examples where that's not the case. Yes, it's
1: it presents itself as a as a relatively conservative investment strategy. But there's there's quite a bit of volatility within the execution of individual strategies and markets. And you can, you know, that it's, it's a place where skill can actually really benefit you because you're 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 essentially a very active investor for the most part when you're dealing with assets. And so you can you can develop competitive advantages that that benefit you over time. It's 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 an area where you know battling the efficient market hypothesis is is a good place because there's there's just so many areas where you can do it.
0: Well, and you bring up a, a key point, point. Um, and I use the analogy when you bought your house in L.A. for two hundred grand and you sold it for a million bucks twenty years later. You think you made eight hundred thousand, but you know by the way I put in a new furnace, new appliances, new plumbing, and all of that stuff you sort of forget about. Um, and as you well know, when you own real estate, you have to have to be an active manager of that property. You can't just sit back and collect rent checks. Now we know plenty of guys who've done that, and the buildings, you know, fall apart pretty fast, or the tenants disappear. Um, but it's it's a yeah, it's a a real actively managed business, no question about it.
1: Tell me a little bit about what you're up to these days, about your firm and, and your strategy.
0: Well, yeah, we're. Um, Frankly, we're kind of adjusting to the, the world. You know, pre-COVID, everybody was going to move into the cities. Um, we were all going to have autonomous cars, so parking garages would be a thing of the past. Parking ratios wouldn't make sense. Uh, everybody was going to have an office and travel by mass transit. And boy, all of a sudden, that got turned on its head. So now we have outward migration. Uh, we have offices that aren't being fully used. We've got people buying cars and needing garages that they didn't we didn't think they would need in the past. Um a good friend of mine runs a parking garage business, and he frankly was thinking he would go out of business. Um, and and now he's he's killing it. Um and and you know, we're so we're seeing all these kinds of changes that we're trying to figure out. You know, is this durable and will it last longer? Or Is it ephemeral? And, you know, of course, I lived through the 08, 09 crisis, which was a real estate driven crisis. And we kind of knew what the problems were. You know, people over levered, they built too many buildings. That was kind of easy. This one's a real challenge and trying to figure out A, how do you handle it currently? And B, you know, if I'm investing in in the business and I have a five year time horizon, what's it all going to look like in, in five years? So we're, We've come up with a lot of uh, our own thoughts on that. Um, and in the case of the public markets, they're pricing in as much damage as they can imagine, so there's a really wide gap. Um, and, and we have things happening. I just talked to one of our clients and uh, they just sold a building in Austin, Texas at a 2% cap rate uh, because it was uh, a 1031, a desperate 1031 transaction. As you know, 1031s probably go out the door. Well, a 2% cap rate on a building in Austin is is absurd. Um so we're we're seeing a lot of really interesting cross currents uh and trying to get our arms around all that um both at the fundamental level, the property level and then how is the public market pricing that?
1: Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that Austin example. We just sold a um class B apartment building in a suburb of North Atlanta and we bought this Like a decade ago so we have a good basis because it was kind of post GFC but the buyer paid you know what we believe is pretty incredible price like it was in the three cap range on a building that needed substantial um, capital investments to address deferred maintenance and things like that and uh, it's just a sign of of the times and, and just the the amount of capital that's out there and the compression in yield across all different types of investment opportunities. It's, it's causing interesting behavior in, in our market for sure.
0: Yeah, you know, you contrast that with 08, 09. And when we would talk to companies, they were having banks pull out of lines of credit where the bank was supposed to show up and didn't. And now um, we have massive amounts of both debt and equity capital uh, chasing uh, whatever they can and it's it's really fascinating to watch that because it is totally different and yet people will say oh the real estate market's tough well not if you're you know in the midst of it trying to buy a building uh, and we would have thought hotels would still be tough to finance they're, they're not there's a lot of capital for hotels now even though they're 50 percent full or less uh, and they're negative cash flow uh, so you know it's yeah we're having to to sort of reevaluate our valuation. Models as well to make sure we don't miss some of this um, potential upside because I you know we would we'd be like you looking at the apartment saying yeah it should trade for you know three four hundred bucks a foot and the guy comes in and offers five hundred you know what do you do of course you sell but um, you know it's it's a very different world and I think that's what the public market has not really figured out and they're worried about inflation worried about interest rate risk. And forget that we have this surfeit of capital floating around, debt and equity, uh, and it's global too. Um, We see it in every market around the world. So we've not seen cap rates go anywhere but down in most urban markets, even though the office may be empty or the shop may be empty. So uh, yeah, we're seeing two to three cap rates on retail in Hong Kong, and you know anybody you talk to will say that's got to be a terrible place to be, but but not so interesting side of of each story, uh, and the other thing that's interesting too is every market's been very different as to how it reacted. I mean, who would have thought San Francisco office would be uh, would hit a vacancy rate of fifteen plus percent, and New York same thing. Uh, you say that to somebody a year and a half ago, they they tell you you're completely crazy. Um, but that's where we are. Interesting times,
1: <laughs> definitely interesting times, and. If I understand your strategy right, I was, I was able to do a little bit of research prior to this uh, conversation. You kind of have a go anywhere strategy. You have presence in, in Europe and in Asia and here in the United States, and you look for opportunities to buy real estate, but through the vehicle of
0: publicly traded securities. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure, and I think what I have learned over the years is um, we put a heavy emphasis on quality of management and quality of business strategy. So it isn't a question of buying something that's down in the dumps you hope recovers. Um, it's, it's buying people who can help that property recover, but we'll look at any company anywhere in the world that's publicly listed and an owner of an operator of uh, a real estate asset. Um, and it it may mean that they're a home developer and they're flipping those assets. So you know we'll we'll invest in the residential business, uh, home development as well as home rent. Um, but pretty much anything's fair game. The the distinction we will make though is if we don't understand the market or the market dynamics or the property type, um, and and for a long time we weren't in data centers because we didn't have a clear view of that. Um, you know, we'll stay away but but otherwise um you know we'll look at anything out there initially whether we buy it or not is obviously a different story okay great well we could probably talk forever but
1: about the background the deals you've seen and but i'd like to i'd like to turn our attention now to um, the housing market i'd love to hear you know one of the things that i've been focused on here in the united states is is what's going on in housing it's been all over the media, top of mind everywhere. You, you can't pick up a newspaper or go on a social media site without hearing something about housing. So what are, what are you thinking about housing?
0: Yeah, and you know, the interesting thing about the U.S. market, and, and really it is unique, is that we've had the development of not only uh, homes built for individual use, single family residential, uh, or the typical apartment buildings, but you've also had homes, uh, homes for rent industry development that uh, Blackstone and some others have built up. Not really sure, I think, when they did it initially where it was going, but now it's become an actual segment of the market. So um, you'll have families that will want to be in a certain residential area, could not afford to buy a house either because they don't have a down payment for it or maybe they don't qualify, but they can rent in that market. And what we've now seen is an evolution of the major home builders in the U.S., Uh, building uh, complexes specifically for home rent. And again, uh, this doesn't exist really anywhere in the the world except for the uh, US. So uh, our view right now in terms of housing across the board is we're bullish on the housing industry, uh, even with construction costs. And we all know the story about lumber going up, Um, but people need housing and the transition out of the cities, maybe that's not permanent, but for sure, that's going to go into rental property before they make a decision. Maybe they finally will stay in the city, but um, it's really created a lot of demand. And we haven't had uh, the construction uh, the activity that we used to have. In the past, if you look at 08, 09, we built way too many houses in way too many markets. I mean, you remember the stories, Vegas was just filled with houses that were empty. We had a lot of uh, actually bulldozed over because nobody would buy them. Uh, and you know now we're back at the point where they would have bought them. Um, so it's it's an interesting evolution, but I think part, partly because we, the supply was constrained, and now it's easy to get easier to get financing. Um, and so we've seen house prices, and it's not that the home building or the home single family home uh, markets are strong in in a lot of uh, cities around the world. Uh, no question about that. Again, though, it's been supply-related. Um, where you've had a lot of excess supply, and again, you can't generalize in our business that well, you look at New York. We've had a massive supply in the last five years of apartments uh, and you know, huts and yards with a lot of buildings in Manhattan that we're hoping to sell for three to seven, $8,000 a square foot, which is obviously the high end of the market, super high end. And, um, and they're going begging. And so They're converting to rent um, uh, and there we do see rent discounts of as high as uh, 30%, Um, but that's an urban phenomenon. And yet you go to a town in Connecticut, Greenwich, and you'll now have 30 bidders on a house, where if you remember just a year and a half ago, Barry Sternlicht out there saying Greenwich is a terrible place to have a house. I had one there, I lost a ton of money, I know. Uh, and so everything's timing related. So don't, don't. I'm not going to claim to be good at that. Um, but the fact is, um, we now have a shortage of housing and uh, surge in demand, um, and it's related to interest rates. It's also related to the urban flight for the moment. Um, and we'll see. We'll see how long that lasts. But I think you know our view on housing is we we just didn't make enough of it, and we've got a buildup, as you no doubt know, because of the crisis of COVID, of savings, a massive amount of savings. And all of that combined, I think we'll still see some solid demand. But it, it, in the US, it's, it's going to be highly segmented. Um, you'll have people will never want to own, and they'll do the homes for rent, or they'll do an apartment. Um, what we haven't seen, and, and this has surprised me, is cannibalization from the apartment sector, a high-rise apartment, into single-family residential. Uh, there's no crossover there, and that we know that from the public companies who are in those businesses, and and I'm frankly very surprised by that. But it hasn't happened. Yeah, and when you when you think
1: about this demand that we're seeing, this post-COVID demand, how much legs do you think it has? Is this like a multi-year phenomenon, or is this too hard to predict? What
0: What are you thinking? I personally think you will have. We're running to the end of that road. Um, because you know we're we're running into issues, and I think that's going to be uh, partly uh, led by the companies ordering their employees back. And right now they're being nice guys and saying, you know, you can go back for three days. Uh, they're also saying no, nobody can be out Monday and Friday. Don't you know? No long weekend stuff. I think they move into um, pre-COVID. The average was about four days per week, which I didn't know because nobody looked at the numbers. Uh, until recently, but maybe it gets to three and a half. Well, that's still a fair amount of time. Now, when you bought that house, that's a two-hour commute, you felt okay about it because you maybe you wanted to go into work one or two days. Now, the boss is saying, no, I, I need to hear four days. You know That could change the dynamic, but it'll be slow. It'll take some time to reverse field. I do think you've had a number of people move into apartments or rental properties who are moving out of the cities who want to move back, um, and I think the argument, you know, we're all more concerned about environmental and uh, carbon footprint and all that. And I think, you know, clearly, if you're driving to work every day, you know, four hours total a day, as you guys in LA love to do, apparently, um, I, I think that goes away uh, or it goes in favor of some transportation, so mass transit. So I think maybe if we, but you know, maybe we build up our infrastructure that could change and you could still live out in um, uh, what a thousand mile or thousand Oaks like a friend of mine used to call it um, and in California area and but maybe you got a high-speed train well that's gonna probably take I mean you tell me you know you're the area probably 10 years before you see that development so I I do think we'll see um, people come back to the cities as the restaurants open up as the uh, retail opens up if you go to New York right now you still see a lot of boarded um, buildings boarded rest uh, retail and restaurants um, but I, I think the cities will continue to uh, survive and so i you know i'm i'm right now at a point where I, I i would be careful about paying too much for your building in austin and i'd be looking around uh, the major cities to see if i can pick up some bargains that makes sense it's it it
1: seems like the contrarian play, but given the trends that were in place for 20 years going into COVID, I kind of agree with you. We're like, we've noticed we own some urban um, multi here in Los Angeles, and we noticed about six months ago, uh, pickup in demand of people moving from all over the place, New York, San Francisco, the Midwest, and they're craving the the experience of the city already. But we've also noticed something else interesting in our local market. So there was a lot of talk about this demand in housing being about moving out of the cities. And I do believe that, like you, that there's some component of it that is. But there's also another component of it that is more like a, a consumer choice. Like they weren't buying houses because they were saving money and they had experienced or their family had experienced some severe stress in the last housing crisis. And COVID has convinced them that they should buy now. And they're not necessarily moving out of where they live; they're just moving around. So they're moving here in LA, for example, to a place like Thousand Oaks or Studio City, or just something that has a little bit more of a suburban feel or a little bit lower price of entry. We're seeing a lot of that. I mean, those are those are the hottest neighborhoods in LA, Um, but they still, in my view, they're still a city of LA, even though they're yeah. You know, if you
0: look globally, the cities are all doing fine. Um, So. You know, no one would think of, I mean, Amsterdam's a small city and that's where we have an office, but they would never think of moving outside of Amsterdam. Um, London, same thing. We're seeing uh, people want to stay around. Um, In Hong Kong and Tokyo, the offices are already full. So, you know, I I just don't think the city dies. I think it adapts. Um, And, you know, that's why I say I think if you can get a good deal in uh, Manhattan office building, you're not the only one looking, I can tell you that, but that's. I'd rather be there. And that's one reason on the public side, we are buying into companies where they can take advantage of that and are trading at a, a discount to fair value.
1: Yeah. Switching gears to the supply side, like you mentioned earlier about this lumber market, which is another thing that has been all over the news and people are concerned about it. I've, in my personal experience, I've felt it, you know, doing my projects around town. Like it's it's a real thing. It's happening and it's causing the prices at Home Depot and, and other places to go up. Do you think that this is transitory or do you think this is gonna be a problem that's gonna be with us for a while? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to LipsonAds.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
0: Well, you know, this reminded me of the commodity craze a few years ago when all the pension funds were buying commodity funds. And I've been reading lately that may also be part of this, because if you look at the uh, number one lumber price got up to seventeen hundred, and had been around four hundred. You know, it just and it doesn't make that much sense. It it can't be pure demand. And what I've also heard is that people were buying it ahead of um, supply, so they created sort of like a toilet paper shortage. Uh, and and as we well know, that's not a problem now. So um, I I kind of think that's part of it. I think there we've also been seeing even in, in residential home construction. Uh, the use of steel, steel studs instead of uh, wood because it's that close in price. And and boy, there's a lot of benefit if you can go to steel if you're indifferent on the cost. Uh, but I I really think this will fall off. I think builders will put stuff off. I know people right now, uh, friends of mine, have just deferred uh, building a house um, because they can. Um, but I think the, the current builders who are already up and running and have commitments to finish the project that's it's gonna be a, gonna be tough and the question is how much of that can you pass through to the uh the buyer um and you know i i it reminds me of prior boom bust and this industry is well known for booming and busting uh the residential development business and i would expect we'll we'll start to see some some issues there but um you know very hard to say and i i think also an, an uptick in interest rates will Will throttle that demand pretty quickly too. Yeah. So zooming out, you know, you guys have this unique global
1: perspective. Are you seeing signs of inflation or worries of inflation across the globe that make you concerned about the potential for rates to move in the other direction?
0: Yeah, we're um, we're really not seeing it in uh, the Asian markets, uh, nor in Europe to any degree. And the latest data I just got out today in, in Europe is inflation's. You know, relatively restrained. Um, one of the things you haven't had is uh, in all these markets where you have had some, like Europe, uh, good example, where you've had some wage subsidy. You also have very strict rules on collecting that cash, and you have to have looked for a job, and and they monitor you, and you have to go to train, So it's and or you can lose that very quickly. So. You you sort of see this the labor force kind of growing as soon as the jobs are open they're going back to them and you don't have uh, at least we haven't heard of it uh, operators of buildings operators of restaurants offering bonuses uh, for them to show up whereas you know the local hotel here has uh, 200 unfilled job listings and is offering a thousand bucks if you show up for an interview um, you know that. We don't hear of that anywhere in the world, and that, you know, as you know, wages are a big part of the inflation story, as is housing, um, and housing's a big component of the CPI. Um, but for a lot of countries, it may or may not be in there either. Um, and you know, just looking at bond yields, yeah, they moved, but they haven't moved that terribly much. Um, so we're not really seeing it. Oil prices, yeah, we, you know, that's they moved, um, but but that's that's a hard one to read. Um, So no one's talking about it in the offshore markets. We haven't seen, uh, one thing we do know in our business is there's very little ability to push rental rates. That's for sure. So for those out there buying real estate as an inflation hedge, because they'll get a pass through on rent increases, that's gonna be a little tougher story. So I would not buy that, um, but I'd be real careful on, on rent growth assumptions. Yeah, that that's one of the phenomena that we we actually
1: started noticing pre-COVID in the established markets was that the the traditional strategies that worked for about a decade, they worked great. You could buy properties and make some kind of improvement to them and, and raise the rents. that kind of really started to run into headwinds in the most expensive jurisdictions, at least the, the LAs and the San Francisco and New York. And uh, I could certainly see how that's kind of spread across the globe. It's one of the reasons why we sold that apartment in Atlanta. It's like the only way that deal makes any sense for the buyer is to literally raise rents by double digits. It's the only way they make the you know they're trying to make an opportunistic return of over ten or fifteen percent. There's no way you can do it unless you raise the rents. But we we find that to be you know a risky proposition
0: to have a business strategy like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially when cap rates are you know four or five percent. Um... You really—it's—it's just hard to move the needle already because you're paying a pretty good price on a per square foot basis, and if you can't get that rent up, um, that's a tough, tough proposition. What would uh,
1: what would a big move in interest rates do to the global real estate market? Like, what if we had a hundred basis point move higher, like that, like happened maybe in 2013 when there was that big move? What would that do to offices and properties across the globe? You know, I can tell
0: you in the the REIT business because there's a dividend yield associated with a REIT. uh, They typically get hit hard right away if it's a a very quick ramp up in rates. So let's say between now and the end of um, July, rates go from one fifty to three percent. Everything gets hit. Um, Then you you take a step back and say okay my stocks down, you know, 10 15%, maybe more. But do do the tenants uh have a chance or do the owners of real estate have a chance to raise rents because it's it's been uh, pushed by economic growth. If it's an overly aggressive central bank um, trying to get ahead of inflation ahead of the curve like Paul Volcker, then all bets are off. And that really is what caused the financial crisis um, uh, back in the '90s, um, if you can, if you're tracking with economic growth, so let's say GDP growth goes to eight percent magically, and interest rates go to three, then um, you're already getting rent growth in your building. You know it. You're you're raising rents on tenants. You feel it, um, and you know that suddenly kind of washes away. So our worries are always: is the central bank ahead of the curve or behind the curve? and by how much and you know and then the other problem is figuring out what are interest rates what does the 10-year bond market tell us these days right now it's saying things look pretty benign but we also have central banks globally uh buying in the bonds right so they're artificially uh tamping down um, the rates so we we've been factoring the last couple of years but we think it's sort of a normalized, uh, Ten-year Treasury in our financial models, so it's inflation plus you know something, fifty basis points um, or hundred basis points. So we're sort of assuming a three percent risk-free rate, or maybe as much as four in the case of the U.S. We never did get there, and in the case of Europe, as you know, the math kind of blows up when you're using negative interest rates. <laughs> and, um, and it was weird. I don't know if you know, but back in it was about a year ago in Denmark when you took out a mortgage, the bank sent you a payment every month. You didn't send a mortgage payment. That's a bizarre concept. Yeah, um, that's fascinating. <laughs> so I yeah I don't think that goes again.
1: Yeah. In the in the housing market, when you look out across the world, are there any other? countries or regions that are experiencing bullishness like you're seeing here in the US?
0: Is there any place else that's exciting for investors to look? Well, you have excitement, but then you also have concern because prices have risen quite a bit. So uh, Sydney, Australia is a great example. Again, though, it's been more of a supply constrained market. And so that's been pushing prices. Um, London, believe it or not, um, still pretty strong. Um, Not as strong, but, but still strong. Um, Hong Kong, you know, we still see deals get done at for you know top quality buildings, but um, you know eight to ten thousand dollars a square foot U.S. Um, those are some pretty big numbers, um, and uh, I, I think pretty much every market—Munich, uh, Amsterdam, uh, Paris—because of the low interest rates, uh, people have been able to buy places, and again, these are all. relatively supply constrained markets. So that's been a large part of it. And they're all trying to stimulate new construction, but as you probably know in Europe, uh, the NIMBY concept is really strong. Nobody wants anybody building anything and they protest like crazy. So it's very hard to add to supply. It's one of the reasons that uh, you've probably been following or may have followed the German, the Berlin authorities trying to cap rates and um, it really cast a fall over the market until it was declared to be illegal. And what happened was rent, rent growth, because in Germany, they'd rather rent than own, pretty much. And uh, rents were were soaring in Berlin. And, and that's an area where you have a lot of uh, you know creative types that don't want to pay much in rent. And that's always been history and very low rent. And then all of a sudden, it, it got more gentrified and rents got uh, way out of whack. And so the government said, okay, enough. And they basically um, fixed the price. They actually call it a, a rent price break. Uh, it's what in German. And what happened, of course, was no one built any supply and no one who had rent control would leave their building. So if you needed housing in Berlin, you basically had to stay in a tent. Um, so it, 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 you know, classic... Uh, effort on the part of the government to ease the pain and actually went the other way and created more pain. And so now that's been erased, and they're trying to come up with some other ideas. Um, that's something, you know, we see this, one of the challenges of investing in in the residential sector for us globally is it's one of the most government-manipulated sectors. You know, if you want to buy votes, you have people build cheap buildings, and you subsidize rents. And all of a sudden, your economics as a landlord blow up. Um, So we, yeah, we're very mindful of that um, in a lot of these markets.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. The the regulatory stuff is uh, is a much bigger deal than people realize. Like here, here in Los Angeles, this is like the the NIMBY capital of America, and it's it's a real problem to as a developer. We have some projects, and our stuff is small scale, but every time. We get a bunch of neighbors who don't want it. They don't want anything built no matter what it is, even if you hire the best architects in the city. Uh, and it's a beautiful building. Um, and what's really interesting about it to me is that there's this sort of cognitive dissonance in the, in the NIMBY narrative in the United States because you get people who are angry about the affordability crisis for housing and angry about the homelessness crisis and and rightfully so that it's these are things that are important public policies. But then every time a developer proposes to add new supply to the neighborhood, they throw a fit and try to do whatever they possibly can do to prevent the the construction moving forward. And so it's this weird juxtaposition of, of points of view that don't seem to make any sense.
0: They they're happy if it's built in the other guy's neighborhood, just not yeah, your own. Exactly.
1: Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's it's fascinating to hear that that's happening in uh, sort of continental Europe. I had been loosely tracking that German story um, for a while now and it sounds like it, it, it just got resolved within,
0: within a few weeks right We did and but now there's there are other initiatives to try to figure out how to address the problem and that the same sort of thing happened in um, in Finland and they realized you know if we shut off supply that's the wrong way to go so the, the way to beat it, and beat rents is to allow builders to build whatever they want when they want and then, but then you got to force the local people like you you're having to deal with to suck it up and all of a sudden they got a high rise building in their backyard um so it you know in a socialist environment maybe you can pull that off it's a little harder uh in, in the US uh, to dump supply in a market
1: yeah especially in california yeah california you know, and I guess the extreme opposite would be
0: China. I know
1: mean, you have you all have been invested in China for quite some time. So what's going on? Yeah. There?
0: Well, you know Chinese um, demand, and and people do forget that incomes have been growing there about um, ten to twelve percent per annum for decades, and so that means your income's doubling about every seven years. And there's a lot of pent up demand over the years because originally the government would give you your housing and it was pretty crappy stuff and it fell apart. But then they allowed you to buy a house, and now you—you you, just so you know—you you don't actually own the house; you, uh, it's on a ground lease, right? So the government always still has a right to take it away, but you know, practically that doesn't happen. And um, and then you—you you have two things happening: one, you have speculative buyers who have a lot of cash, and then you also have those funded by. Uh, you know, with one child, you have two sets of grandparents, and two sets of grandparents can help you get start, get your starter home. So, uh, we've seen lots of um, new construction, but we're also seeing, and you may have read about this group called Evergrande, and uh, they're they've gotten way out over the skis and everything. And they've done tons of leverage, uh, but the the guys we like use very little leverage, uh, almost no leverage, and they're also taking uh, deposits from the buyer that amount to roughly 100% of construction costs over time. So they got progress payments, big deposits up front and then progress payments. So they they kind of de-risk the project. But there's there's plenty of demand for the right kind of product, just like anywhere in the world. And then there's stuff that gets built that nobody wants to touch. So we've had ghost towns for sure uh, in the last cycle, in 08, 09, a ton of, of those. Um, and those have all kind of gone by the wayside. And now, now you've got a fairly rational pace of uh, building and finance uh, but the government you know every, any any day now they might say uh, hey we're going to raise the down payment requirement and all of a sudden demand falls off uh, or they won't approve what they one of the main things they do is they just don't approve the project and they slow down construction that way but it's it's heavily managed as you would expect in China and yet um, for us, Companies uh, you know they'll trade down to 40, 50 percent below NAV, and the NAV is getting um, valued pretty much every day because they're selling houses every day. So um, so it's actually it's a great business, but you just have to know what you're doing. Are you and cur- there we do stay with the better guys.
1: Yeah, are you, are you currently bullish on these these discount to NAV opportunities in China?
0: yeah, yeah. We're, um, we're we're investing in those companies but but again it's more um, it's a rifle shot approach uh, private private guys we know well and deliver a great product that everybody wants um, but not um, not the commodity type housing yeah
1: okay maybe we'll close this conversation on housing by talking about Hong Kong because I, I read in one of your recent up, updates investor updates about these, these really incredible retail or residential transactions that were trading—you know, eleven thousand five hundred per square foot. You know, to put things into context for Americans, like a neighborhood like Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero, at best would trade for like two thousand a square foot. Like that's a, w- a huge
0: win. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. London can get London can get up to you know eight to ten thousand foot, but that's rarefied air for them um some of the you know the, the demand is really coming from the newly minted wealthy in china uh wanting to have kind of like wanting to have a place in new york right Um, but for them hong kong's new york it's a status symbol um and and they're not worried at all about um a political story because obviously they came from china um so a lot of it's chinese wealthy chinese money um we are seeing uh, Chinese investors regularly in our Singapore office, who you know we thought might have 50 to 100 million, turns out they've got 5 to 10 billion net worth. Um, these are, you know, one of the guys was a, a, an original um, employee at Alibaba, and he retired 15 years ago, but he's probably got 15 or 20 billion bucks. Um, so you see a lot of that. Um, it's, you know, I don't think it's really a case of black money, like a lot of markets we know of, it's people hiding cash. Mm-hmm. So now they use Bitcoin maybe, but they also like to buy a house to hide out. But um, you know, we've, seen, um, we've seen these prices for a long time. They, they'll vary, and they will do speculative buying. So you might see someone who will buy in at 10,000 foot, thinking they'll be able to sell it at 12,000 foot. Um, so there's some of that going on as well. Um, but yeah, the numbers, you know, are just astounding, and it's all high rise. They've all got great views, a lot of security, all that stuff. But you, know, you for two thousand bucks a foot in L.A., you can get that too, um, or uh, maybe three thousand in New York. But so I, you know, I, but but I think we underestimate when you've got a population of a billion three, how many, you know, ten, multi-millionaire billionaires are floating around. Where this is really not a big deal. They love real estate. And you know, maybe they're gonna buy a jet, but they bought the apartment first. So yeah. Plenty of those guys out there.
1: Yeah, and it goes back to what you mentioned earlier in your remarks about supply. Like for whatever reason, the residential market is is an area where supply is sometimes constrained artificially either by regulation or market conditions. And so we we just went through like a decade. Of recovery from the housing bust, and it it seems like globally, housing is a problem, and it's becoming a political problem because it's becoming too expensive, and it, this is not just the U.S. issue now; it's everywhere.
0: It, well, that's one of our favorite investment opportunities right now, is uh, especially in the U.S. We're working with a couple of groups uh, low-income housing, um, and you know the challenge is, as you know, getting the zoning. Uh, and and also building to a cost that is going to give you a reasonable return. Most low income housing guides are refurbishment types, and they got a great deal in the building. It needed a lot of work, and um, and they could still rent it out at a reasonable price. Um, but it's a, it's a it's a challenge, and every country in the world is trying to figure out how they can skin that cat. Um, uh, but it's not easy given construction costs. And land costs, and then the other issue. Uh, you know, we invest in manufactured housing. Uh, the reason we invest in manufactured housing—it's—they're a lot nicer, by the way, than trailer parks. Uh, but that's what comes up in people's minds, and they don't want a trailer park in their area. So when these guys go for planning and zoning, they quite often get rejected. Yeah. Well, that's why we like it—high barriers to entry. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, the the affordable housing
1: space is is a is a fascinating space. It's one worth looking at for people who are kind of looking for like a good long term opportunity. And the the reason I think it's so exciting is just the the scale of money that's about to be thrown at this space. Exactly. Yep. The more-
0: ESG funds are all yeah. looking
1: for affordable housing. Yep. yep. They need it. The countries need it. And you know, here in the U.S., you know, they're they're talking about dramatic expansion in the programs that fund these. So your your Section 8 program, for example, was chugging along at like $20 billion, and they're talking about bringing it like 2 or 3x that in it going forward for the next 10 years. And, and that's just a massive amount of money that's going to be available yeah. for, for subsidies.
0: Um, that's a great business. And again, though, as you well know, it's not that easy to execute. Yeah. It sounds great on paper, and you can get the money, uh, but can you find the projects? yeah try building an affordable
1: housing complex in Venice, California. <laughs> um I think this would be a, a good time now to switch over to office because office is another uh segment of the market that has been absolutely top of mind. Uh it, and it's it's becoming maybe not controversial but it's becoming an issue here in the US for corporations because now we've we've trained an entire generation of workers of a new way of conducting business. And there's there doesn't seem to be a settled viewpoint about what the go forward situation should be like for a big multinational corporation or a law firm or a bank. And there's there's strong opinions on either side. And I know you all have seen what's happening across the globe and have some unique perspectives on office. So what do you
0: think's going on there? Well I think you know the US is where you're seeing the the greatest amount of turbulence. Um, Because everybody, the companies, space planners, leasing agents are trying to figure out what's a good number of days in the office and how much space are you going to need. If you look at the Asian markets, um, it's back to work as normal, and even with a lockdown in Singapore where you're not supposed to be going to the office, next week, they're all planning on going to the office, and they do not want to miss it. so, you know, it's really more a focus on the U.S. and how space gets used going forward uh, than, than almost anywhere else. Um, London, same thing. We see people wanting to come back to the office. Um, maybe they'll work out an extra day or two here or there but with, with the boss, but I, I think they'll all end up showing up. The, the, the key thing for us is we're looking at the next several years, Will a current tenant, one of the multinational companies, might have taken more space, a warehouse, in anticipation of growth, and I don't know if they're going to do that anymore. Um, maybe down the road when we're all back in the office and we have another uh, another round of vaccines and we're all 100% good. But uh, you know, I think we're, we're. I think for the next few years, we're going to have this. Cloud over our heads saying, well, maybe there's another variant coming out. So maybe I should still allow for not five days in the office, but three to four. Um and so I think tenants are going to be very sensitive to that. We are seeing already great benefits for WeWork and the and where WeWork almost went bust. Now it's it's back to being a great uh product and um, and flex space. Um, so I I think. You know, as we look at valuations for office space, we're tempering our growth rate in rent, if at all, and um, focusing on markets where we have supply overhang potential, uh, because we could get hit by the proverbial bus um, if things don't really change much from where they are today uh, with that supply. So, New York has a ton of supply. Uh, I I do think the companies are going to order people back. more or less, uh, but they'll be very careful about what they take on um, in terms of new space. Uh, and yet, you've got J.P. Morgan building a monstrous headquarters in Midtown. Um, so you know, it, it's it's the funniest thing. I've never seen so many people so confused about what to do going forward, including you know the whole the whole gamut: the space planners, the leasing agents, the companies. Um, and they're all i think they're all kind of playing the game of let's see what happens in september and then try to figure out a plan and some are announcing their plans but i think they'll change those um so you know going forward we're we're of the view that um, office is a good thing to be buying with a five-year time horizon but maybe not five months
1: interesting and are, are there opportunities in, in the public market to to buy, you know, office REITs, for example, or office type uh, companies, and, and get a good deal at this point, or have they all rallied rallied with the rest of the world?
0: No, they. You know, it's it's definitely been the those who focus on suburban office uh, have done really well, and those like Boston properties who focus on center city and the gateway cities uh, have not done as well, and. In fact, Boston Properties just announced a venture, they haven't identified who it is with a couple of sovereign wealth funds to buy properties and using that sovereign wealth fund capital because they can't issue stock at a discount and yet they see some really interesting opportunities. So that that to me is telling the story right there. Um, we'll probably see some take private situations. We know a few that are, that are out there uh, because the stocks are far cheaper than the underlying real estate. Um, but that's only in the case of the uh, more urban locations, which is interesting because if you contrast that with logistics, if you have a uh, an urban infill logistics kind of company, it's on fire and trading probably fifty percent above NAV. Uh, the office guys are you know twenty plus percent below fair value. Yep. So yeah, there
1: are definitely opportunities. Okay, that's interesting it seems like I, I listened to a few of the earnings calls for the big office streets that hold the global portfolios, and what was really fascinating about it was that they were just comparing contrasting Asia. They're like, "Look, in Shanghai, we're at ninety-something percent occupancy," and so it, it it makes you think like, okay, maybe when when COVID is a distant memory in the U.S., that we will kind of get back to a, a state of normalcy, and and the office market looks really oversupplied today, but with a growing economy in five years of or three to five years of time, you know, maybe it won't be oversupplied. And maybe office will do just fine. What do
0: you think of that? Well, I think that's right. And I think as long as you underwrite to rents that aren't gonna zoom, you know, that if I'm getting, you know, 80 bucks a foot in New York, maybe five years from now I get 85. If you're building in some fairly conservative assumptions and the and you can still buy it and take it off the market. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. I just I think right now, um, there's so much capital that you'll be uh, outbid um, pretty quickly. Um, and people will be willing to accept low returns for a long period of time, uh, thinking that they'll get the rents, but maybe it's five years out. So I think the actual ability to buy the building is, and that's why we're in the stocks, it's just a whole lot easier. I get I get to buy them every day and it's a for sale at a low price. Um, but if I'm trying to buy an office building in New York, even the ones that have just been developed and we know have to be on water underwater. Um, and and you know I'm thinking one Vanderbilt. it's a beautiful building right by the Grand Central. Um, you know, they were kind of they kind of needed hundred and sixty dollar rents a square foot to to get over their construction, but make some profit in construction. I just don't see them getting those rents even close on a net effective basis, So, but they aren't going to sell either. If you could buy it, and you can buy the public company that developed it, but if you could buy that building, I think they're going to hold out for something closer to that. Uh, I think they're in at uh, 1,700 bucks a foot, maybe maybe higher, Uh, they won't really accept anything uh, below that, so your opportunity to buy in at these discounted prices is is, is not so great, uh, except through the public market. For the
1: moment, that's yeah, and that's one of the fascinating things to me about your strategy because it gives you it gives you the chance to take advantage of these anomalies where you know in the um, in the office space assets are trading in the private sale market at lower cap rates than what you could buy the, the REIT portfolio for. So you have this like instant arbitrage of uh, opportunity that you can take advantage of.
0: Yeah, and it, but it's very property type specific. So for example, in an apartment complex in your neck of the woods, uh, I might be paying a, a premium um, over what you're paying on the ground. So uh, yeah, you got to pick your spots, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting that it, it moves around like that and it, it probably does more often than you think and that that creates these opportunities for, for you to, to make good returns.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's and that's what we got to watch. And that's frankly how I got into this business. I was doing US only for a while and I realized if I can do it globally, I have more chances to hit pockets of declines and take advantage of that than if I'm stuck in the same market all the time.
1: Yeah, definitely. So it seems like in office, to summarize the thoughts on that, it seems like the players that own offices are, are pretty well capitalized. The lending environment is still there and everyone's kind of taking a wait and see, despite you know pretty low occupancy rates, at least here in the US and in other parts of the world, like Europe and London. Um, but there's no signs of distress
0: anywhere. In, in value, yeah, yeah. yeah, all these guys last summer, Built up these distress funds, and you know we don't see much distress out there at all. Uh, there is some, in you know some shopping centers, and um, obviously the movie theater business. Although AMC stock up three thousand percent solved a lot of problems, but they were that was one that was about to go bust. Um, hotels we thought were going to have real struggle uh, finding buyers or financing. That's not been the case. Uh, so yeah, there really has there's nothing at all like the RTC days when I was buying land for 25 cents on the dollar, and uh, and buildings not much higher than that, and then uh, you know doubling or tripling your money that that's just not happening. And um, you know, we're just in a new world. We've got sovereign wealth funds with tons of cash and demand. They all like real estate. We've got all the pension funds allocating even more money to real estate. Um, and then you've got people flush with cash, just globally, um, savings. So, um, so it's a cash-rich world, and um, you know the property sector is, you know, weak in some areas and not so weak in others. But it, but bargain-wise, it's very tough to find.
1: Yeah, I, I keep wishing for a day to come back like twenty ten to twenty thirteen when. In, in at least for my career, that was like your RTC moment. There were these incredible opportunities. Oh, yeah. The properties were actually trading for, you know, far less than replacement cost. And it, it was, you know, that that crisis caused a lot of problems in, in the real estate. Um, and th- this time, things are just different. You know, one, one of the questions I was going to ask you, but I forgot to ask, which is, if you could take yourself back to February of 2020, you're a global investor. You've got eyes on the ground in Asia. What do you think is about to happen to the real estate market? You know, given given what was going on in Wuhan.
0: Well, you know, we were at that point. Um, the real estate markets pre-COVID were were really strong. Um, a lot of rent growth. We still weren't seeing a whole lot of supply, and we were feeling pretty good about things. Uh, more worried about overvaluation. Um, and then the whole bottom dropped out um, of certain sectors. Uh, the one area that we probably we missed, and in retrospect, you know, should have been smarter about is e-commerce um, and logistics. Uh, we we were in it, but not as heavily as we might have been. Um, and and I should have foreseen that because the rent levels and retail started to get way out of hand. And these four retailers were really struggling to pay the rent with sales relatively modest, but the landlords just kept jamming them and thinking they could forever. And um, and meanwhile, there's Jeff Bezos out there with the Amazon alternative, and you know you didn't have to worry when you went into the store it didn't have your shoe size and you got frustrated and you had to drive home empty-handed, and he's got it on your doorstep uh, within a day or two. Um, and, and that, so the retailers shot themselves in the head, the landlords shot themselves in the head. And we, I wish we'd been a little smarter about seeing that trend. And of course, COVID just totally accelerated it. Um, and, and now it's a, it's a very different world. And in fact, now I would be buying into bricks and mortar uh, or more tempted to buy in bricks and mortar retail with the right retailers and uh, smart concepts because it's now getting cheaper to have that storefront than, um, than putting all your stuff in with uh, with Amazon. Interesting. So on the, yeah, we're getting to that point, yeah.
1: Yeah, on the retail front, so if I, if I understand your point correctly, the there has been some price declines in the retail sector. And at the same time, the e-commerce alternative, which you mentioned is becoming more and more expensive because it's kind of blown up in the last 12 months. So, I'm I'm imagining I don't have the the charts in front of me, but I imagine if you pull up a chart of one of these logistics REITs
0: or something, it's probably done amazing, right? Oh, they've been yeah, killing it um, and trading way above even inflated, what I would consider inflated underlying values. So they're trading way above fair value, and the values are about the strongest. I mean, we're seeing logistics trade at you know what used to be office rates. Um, you know, and and yeah, it's all a function of huge demand, and it doesn't seem to be abating. I was talking with one of the largest owners of uh, private owners of uh, logistics uh, warehouse space around the country, and you know, he said he's enjoying the ride. Uh, didn't expect it, and it's going to keep going uh, for maybe another, well, who knows, another year or two, but um, but we'll see. I I just think, you know, getting back to my the point about the rent rent differential. You know for a retailer, instead of maintaining that storefront and paying what was a pretty high rent, you know, they just they have everything at, at the warehouse and they take out the middleman, effectively, is how that worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the retail landlord, which is the middleman. Um, now, um, you know, the rents getting back to earth. Uh, maybe that that does work, and that does compete against um, the logistics guys. Um, but you know, um, right now the money is still flowing. Uh, in that direction, yeah. It seems that way. It seems
1: that they're they're getting double digit rent increases. It's like the uh, the multifamily pre COVID sector, where you could buy urban exactly. multifamily. Yeah,
0: yep, yeah. Well, and what you got to watch is when those rents, as a percentage of sales, start to get up in that you know twelve to fifteen percent rent range. Then it's cheaper to be at the store. And remember, returns are what forty plus percent of sales. So, and there's a high cost of returns, um, and in fact, a lot of retailers now just tell you don't even bother sending it back if it doesn't work. You know, uh, it's too expensive for me to restock. Those numbers don't work long term, so we'll see. That's interesting. Another area that's been really hot is the data centers. Did you guys get involved in those? Yeah, and we were late to that party too, partly because I, you know, I had a bad experience in data centers in the '90s, and um, when when the tenant didn't show up, I had this uh, uh, $2,000 a square foot cost pillbox that I couldn't give away to charity. Um, so we were slow, but you know now it's taken on a whole different um, flavor. And you've got uh, companies like Equinix who control the junction points. So kind of like the train, they're like the train station where everybody has to go through. So they've got uh, uniqueness of of situs, as we say in real estate. They've got barriers to entry, and you know. Let's face it; we're all using the internet like right now, uh, and and that doesn't go away. Maybe, you know, video games get played less when you're forced to go back to the office and you can't hide it from the boss. But I, I think um, it's just going to keep going. And that, but but notice this: the big growth for companies like Equinix is not the U.S. anymore; it's offshore, and so that's the interesting. Point if you're buying into data centers in the U.S., you know are you still in in a great position or not? And that I think the jury's out on that one because part of the problem is if you're not controlling that junction center, then you're more or less a commodity type company. You're you're selling it to well companies like ours. You know we need we need access to the internet. We need rack space, so you know we rent it from some guy for a two year. Least. Um, and what I've always struggled with is it, it really is a technology business, technology as a service, and not a real estate concept. And even rent is tracking uh, your power utilization, not um, not some sort of space rent. So I know that's old-fashioned, uh, but I you know it's not bricks and mortar; it's it's air that you're running. So yeah. No, that that makes sense to me. It reminds me actually of another one that's kind of hot
1: right now, which is Ghost Kitchens, which is kind of being presented to the world as a real estate play, but it's a, it's more of a nuanced play because you, you can't just have a kitchen. You need to know how to like find people to use it and and how to operate it and, and the same kind of dynamics that you were describing for data centers.
0: Yeah, it's complicated. No. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then you really have to analyze what's the revenue stream look like and who's it coming from and yeah. how comfortable are you. And the thing about data centers, they won't tell you who the tenants are. It's top secret. So you can't even do it traditional. Like when you go into a building, you're going to buy a building you do due diligence on. You know, the tenant, you know who the tenants are, you know roughly what the rent's like. Here, they, they won't tell you. It's very that, interesting. Yeah, that makes it hard too,
1: to evaluate a given problem. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yeah okay so we're coming to the end of our time but i wanted to uh, maybe do some kind of rapid fire questions if you're okay with it sure sure okay great. Far away. all right so the first one is is what's happening to the valuations of real estate in countries that are really struggling with covid like brazil or india
0: yeah interesting point um the uh, from a stock perspective, they've really started to recover, which is not surprising because they'll recover ahead of it. Um, But each market has a very different structure real estate. So if we look at commercial real estate in Brazil, the tenant really controls. It's just more of a socialist environment. So they have an easy way to get out of each lease. So there's not a lot of rental security there. And the office market is more condominiumized as opposed to multi-tenant buildings. And so now I've got a whole bunch of owners in a building. So it's it's more complicated that way. Uh, the retail story, same thing. You've got very short-term leases that people can walk out on. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think the, they are, from a, a, a property buyer's perspective, if you're buying direct, there are great opportunities in those markets as long as you're comfortable with the next outcome. Which is both political and virus oriented and COVID oriented. The same, you know, India has the same sort of political issues as well. Um, their market, the companies we've looked at and we we actually like, like um, Blackstone's invest in one of them that we like a lot, um, is a residential developer. Uh, and there are some good office developers there. Uh, Gerald Hines has been in that market quite a bit actually uh, in Bangalore. Um, so there, there are ways to play it. Um, it's just not that well established a market for the buyer's side of things. So you're you're flipping it maybe to some local guys. And the other problem in India in particular is land assemblage. They call these guys aggregators, and you're not really ever sure about their title. And that's one of our big issues um, in that market. So yeah, with a lot of, uh, and, and Blackstone's been there a long time. I don't know if they've made any money. It's just been a tough slog. You would think it would be easy. You've got 300 million engineers. Um, You've got great educational system. But then you also have um, extreme levels of poverty. Uh, and um, and transportation is horrific. So uh, actually, that's a business, you know, if you can crack the nut on logistics. And we we have some investments in that arena and public companies. Um, that, that's that's a great place uh, to go. Um, originally, logistics was not great because your grocer would automatically send somebody out. Labor was so cheap; it was cheaper to have them go out on, on their little uh, bicycle or, or motorbike and drop stuff off uh, than for you to go to the store. And so they've been doing this for years. They just hadn't formalized the, the structures. So um, lots of potential, but. It's one of those, it's kind of like Argentina that uh, people have been talking about the great potential for decades and it's never happened. And so we've are we studied it. We spent a lot of time in India. Um, we still haven't gotten that comfortable with uh, how you can make money there. And, and for us, it's more problematic because they have a really complicated, expensive uh, registration system for investors. So it's not, it's not that easy to get in and out. Okay, that's interesting.
1: Okay, next one climate change and the move towards carbon credits and the regulatory environment, is that a problem for the global real estate
0: industry? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, ESG is, of course, big for all investors and something we look at. And one of the things companies talk about is their carbon footprint, but we have no way of knowing what that means. And I'll give you a great example. Uh, Data centers can score very high because maybe they Put a solar panel or two on the roof, but they're they're huge. Uh, energy sucks, and uh, in the case of anybody located in Northern Virginia, they're using uh, a lot of coal power. So what you have to do is look through you know the details, and and we're actually doing this sort of exercise not on a superficial way, to, but to say you know what are what exactly uh, how are you sourcing power. And let's let's do a look through to all of the sources in fact i just got this today and it's called um it's called indirect source rule and this is a southern california thing that just came out for warehouses so they're basically taxing you for the trucks that come to your facility as a landlord and then you try to pass that on to the tenants so you know all this stuff there are a couple of things there's there's climate change which can affect your Coastal markets and it's something, you know, we're looking at. We just don't know how to evaluate it that easily. Um, and then the other thing is energy use, or you know, companies being smart about uh, the buildings and how much energy they use has been happening for the last decade. You know, smart material, low-e glass, um, heat pumps, all that stuff, because you know, it saves you money and in, in operating the property. So that all makes tons of sense. But then when it comes to carbon footprint, if I'm a shopping center, I really need to measure the carbon footprint of the cars coming to my store if they're not all uh, electric cars. And then for the electric cars, where are they getting their power? Is it a coal-fired plant or is it something else? So I think there's a lot of stuff up in the air, um, a lot of greenwashing we're running into on the stock side. So ESG funds that don't do the homework on it, um, but just say that they're green, and we know, um, you know, the SEC's made a number of inquiries into this to make sure that, you know, what she say is is real. And if I'm claiming that we're investing in companies with low carbon footprints, how do I really assess that? And I don't have a good answer for that yet.
1: Yeah, but we're watching it for sure. Yeah, it it seems too early to tell. It seems a little chaotic. There's a lot of energy directed towards it. There's venture capital aligning itself towards that space, and. The built environment is definitely in the crosshairs. There's no question about it. They're going to come after the, the liberal jurisdictions who are pursuing these strategies, or maybe all jurisdictions. The way things are heading, it looks like it might be all jurisdictions. And so the,
0: the real estate owners of the world have to pay attention to it. Yeah, I think so. I think what will happen really soon is um, much better building ventilation because of worries about COVID. And yeah. that's not that high a cost. And yet, um, buildings have not been. Recirculating air very uh, often, like once a day, and I think they're going to start, you know, doing that. So we, you know, we expect to see that sort of thing, and that may actually cause tenants to move in the direction of the more modern buildings. And so we are worried about older quality buildings with older systems uh, that don't have more open space so that you can space it out. That don't have elevators that can adjust to uh, lower numbers in the car. You know, so. You make an appointment for the elevator. Right now, it's easy to do for the high-quality buildings. Um, You're on your phone. It goes in. It tells you what elevator you're on, and they can limit the numbers easily. But in these older buildings, tough things. So, we do expect a big uh, decline in values for older quality uh, office buildings, and there are plenty of those in New York. Yeah, that's really
1: interesting. Yeah, that's that's probably going to be a big trade. because the install base around the globe, the install base of real estate is really dated.
0: Oh yeah, yep. yeah,
1: yeah. And nobody's done anything really to worry about it for a yeah. long time. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Okay, so last question: What's the best
0: opportunity that you're seeing in the whole world? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, because for us, it's you know we're really company focused, so we've got this. Um, great little company in the UK, and they, um, they somehow they've figured this out for, for um they call it PRS, it's uh, private rental um, scheme, and it's rental housing um, and apartments and that sort of thing, and then also student housing. They're able to do development, but take it through planning and zoning on an option basis. And we just don't see that done in a lot of places around the world, but they've been able to, pull that off. And there's huge demand for that kind of property. So um, anything related to housing, especially low-income housing, we're looking for uh and and that's not globally, but in in select markets. Um the other thing, you know, we are we still see things get beaten down by sentiments. So everybody hates China, then values the stock price to go down and then that creates a phenomenal uh, opportunity. Just to give you an idea, those developers I mentioned in China we're investing in pay about a 7 to 9% dividend yield and they've got it cover. That's not a bad return while you're waiting for that discount to NAV to narrow. Um, office, uh, we definitely like. I think that's a great opportunity, urban office, especially in the US, uh, but also offshore. And we're absolutely looking at retail, uh, even though. Uh, my good buddy—I uh, don't know if he'd say that—but uh, John Gray, who I know, uh, have known for a while, um, he'll tell you at Blackstone, we we're not doing retail. Well, I, you know, who knows um, what they're doing behind the scenes? But I think I think retail is something you've got to look at. And um, the public markets is priced like it's going to die in most places. And there's some really great operators out there. Um, U.S. There's a great company. Um, we like him a lot because he's a real uh, rifle shooter. He's been a smart player for years. Called Acadia Ken Bernstein, um, and and but there are lots of these really good companies that they don't have to be cheap. They just have to be smart operators. So there's another company um, called Torino. Uh, they do infill Industrial. They uh, they came out of the private equity world and just very disciplined buyers. So we get excited about companies with a good strategy a history of good execution, and uh, good governance. Yeah, and it's in every market. We find them everywhere. Um, yeah, those sound definitely worth looking into.
1: Well, Jim, this was really fun. Thank you for uh, being so open and sharing your thoughts uh, across all these different topics and all these different jurisdictions. I learned a ton, and I, I think the audience at, at Real Vision is uh, is going
0: to learn a ton as well. So thank you very much for your time today. Well, thanks for having me. And I also enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Nick.
1: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads.